newspaper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Here we are with the Media Project, a half hour of commentary and analysis, an opportunity for you to hear what uh, some old timers have to say about current times in journalism. I'm Rex Smith, a former editor of the Times Union, now writing on the Upstate American, it's called. Dr. Alan Sharktok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, investigative journalist Rosemary Armeo, and Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette, now vice president of the New York Press Association. There, did I get that all done quickly? Sounds right. Yeah. We're all here. We're all here. Rosemary had to get a new chair when she came into the studio because she was falling under the table. It's, it was underneath the desk. Yeah, I forget is, the microphone. It's important. Reach the desk. This is radio, but so we don't need to look good. But we, we, <laughs> we couldn't even hear you to get up to the microphone if you're not careful here. Hey, if we're talking, by the way, if, since we started by saying old timers, let's just talk about this great old custom that is now gone, and that is paid obituaries have yeah. taken over real obituaries in newspapers. I mean, Alan, given the fact that you're um, yeah. <laughs> almost dead, you, you probably check the newspaper every day just to make sure you're still with us, right? It's an old Lee Hayes line. I, I, if I'm not there, I, I check the obituaries. If I'm not there, I go back to bed. Right. <laughs> but, you know, th- this is a problem. I, I don't know. Why is it, why does it matter that newspapers only rarely actually write real live editorial obituaries nowadays? Why is that wrong? One of the reasons that this is a problem is, so the paid obituaries have this, you know, folksy sound to them, and people get to write their own obituaries, but it's lacking the editorial integrity. I mean, they were fun to read for the first couple of years, but now I'm getting tired of these long-winded obituaries. The other thing that I think we're really missing is some people aren't even running obituaries anymore, so we don't know people are dead. The obituary page used to be a fairly good record of what was happening in your community, but now People die, and some somebody will post it on Facebook, but if you don't catch it, you don't even know someone's alive or dead. One of the other issues is young reporters aren't getting the practice of writing obituaries, of checking all the facts, of reaching out, and making sure things are done correctly. So I think it's a big loss. Newspapers did it to make money. They're charged for obituaries. They always charge for obituaries, but um, now they're really charging because some people run obituaries that are full pages and and bringing thousands of dollars to the home paper. And does that include distinguished papers like the New York Times? Well, yes, they have paid obits, but they also have a very, they have a, an obit desk. They actually yeah, have a true. bunch of really experienced journalists who write wonderful obituaries. Some top people. Yeah. But. I, want, I want to talk about editorial integrity. That means something to us, but maybe not to our readers. What it means when you have an obit that a family member wrote is it's not news. It is when we run these things. It doesn't even say what the cause of death is. Who, what, where, when. The first thing you want to know when someone dies is what happened. What did they die of? You try to find it in today's obituaries. And you are right. They cost so, so much money. It's not just a pittance. It's 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 a lot of money, and it's by the word, and so you're getting a minimal, if at all. And that is... Um, it's a it it, it 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 isn't just editorial integrity. It's our mission and local. You guys who love local news, people dying in your community is of utmost importance, and we are not covering it. And when you're letting the family write you a bit, they will cut out the embarrassing part. 
like we had a prominent local citizen shortly after I became the editor of the Times Union who died, who uh, the family's obit didn't include his time in the federal uh, incarceration. Long up. Right. Yeah. The, uh, that was, uh, and you know, the, they were upset when our reporter called and inquired about this, called me to complain that the reporter was asking about his prison. Don't, can't, don't you have any respect for the dead? I mean, what you're just going to keep piling on. Well, yes, he went to federal prison, convicted of crimes. That is part of the story of a person's life, right? But of course, newspapers could in some ways editorialize um, by bringing out stuff that may not have been in federal prison, but may in fact cast some aspersion on the person who died. This is an editor's choice, right? I think that's immaterial. I think if you if you have a written obit about someone important enough to rank it, you get a real story with the pluses and minuses in their life. You get one written by the family, and it sure. hides the other stuff. On the other hand, it does point out there. Are, read those opits. My mother and I laugh at them every morning. The openings are ridiculous. You know, so-and-so. Went to the great went, went on the wings Jeez. of the angels to be with God, you know, with his loving family nearby. Everyone dies quietly. No one dies thrashing and groaning. It's really, <laughs> it's really very interesting to read them, but it's fiction. It's all fiction, and that is not news, and we do a disservice to our readers now and in the future. Obituaries are a huge source of genealogical research, and because the record is not complete, Complete, it's broken in the future. I remember my first city editor when I was an intern uh, at the Rapid City Journal in Rapid City, South Dakota. I wrote it. Uh, I was this young kid, and I was assigned to write a, a story about somebody who had died. And he came back to me and gently said, "Rex, uh, you have that uh, so and so passed away." He said. People don't pass away in the Rap City Journal. They don't go to meet their maker, kick the bucket, or do anything like that. They, they die. die. No People one dies in the Rap City Journal. In our yeah. local paper now, yeah. the, the, I, I look for dead, mm -hmm. and you don't see that word. You, right. just, mm -hmm. you know, I actually even encountered two warring obituaries from different sides of a family when a person died. Yeah, maybe <laughs> yes. in different sets of survivors. It's, uh, oh, wow. you, uh, there was one obituary we, we handled it at one point where at the end it said so-and-so was survived by this person, this person and this person who never bothered to write, never visited, <laughs> not even on Christmas. <laughs> so the question that's is, do you funny. take that out? I think we did take it out. It's a long time ago, but it was, I say it, it was, it was a Okay, now one. that's and stuff I sort of like. Maybe I'm switching sides. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, there's the whole question of divorces. Oh, yeah. uh, well, those yeah. used to be in the paper, too. That's right. Mm -hmm. Well, divorce decrees survived by his first oh, wife. Oh, that, I, I see. mean, that's something. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you're right. Divorces used that was another source of local news, and and now we act like it's gossip, and we're above that. But why the heck what else do you mean? would you read your local paper? What do you mean? It's oh, the, newspapers it's now say, oh, why would you print a divorce if, unless it's someone important or the divorce was, was some a unusual court event? Action, right? It used to be all you know under the court. What did it say? Vital court, statistics? Uh, yeah, something, something like that. that. Yeah. It was all the, the divorce decrees where uh, divorce is granted. Anyway, but this is hard. This is this is one of the ways in which local journalism is um, is divorced, if you'll pardon the expression, from the community. Uh, right. Moving to paid obituaries weakens the newspaper's links to its community. And this is something that we've seen over and over again. How so, Rex? I just want to interrupt for a moment. How did it weaken the links? Well, because people can't trust that their local newspaper has this content anymore. Uh, people know that the content is actually tainted uh, by not being accurate. At, at the very least, it's late. 
I mean, yeah. if you have someone in your family die and you listen to all your relatives say, I didn't see anything in the paper. When will it be in the paper? When will it's Timeliness has nothing to do with obits anymore. When Pete Seeger died, he's my hero, of course. My really? Producer. Yes, mm. really. And um, I, I really love the guy. Uh, and there was a cursory uh, obit, I believe, in the Times. I was infuriated. And the next day, out came this huge, uh, uh, very favorable, you know, very nice obit for Pete. I've often wondered, who got to them? Or did, what happened? Did somebody wake up? Well, probably they just didn't get around to it. You know, one of the things we no, I saw it. an well, they original had no space one. Or it happened yeah. right on deadline, and that was yeah. the best they could do. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, that you could, guys that's are always such the case. great apologists for no, things. No, kind that of sort of explaining there. to you how a newsroom works. You know, yeah. just so that you might not how know. condescending you are. Right? <laughs> that was a good <laughs> one. <Chris>. Glad to help. <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> uh, anyway, so but speaking of dead people, yes, we talked a little bit about this on the roundtable. The Anne Hex story. Oh my, dead or is she alive? There were wars over because she was brain dead at one point, according to family and friends. So uh, she was, in effect, declared dead twice, depending on what media you read? Uh Uh-huh. Interesting. I was so confused. I I read that she died on Sunday, and I said, oh, I thought she died on Friday. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a difference of opinion. She probably was brain dead for weeks. And so uh, I think most of the stories, if you went back and looked beyond the headlines, said, well, she was declared brain dead, but was being kept alive. Right. So yeah, for, for the harvesting organ. of the organs, right. And so that is a question about what, it's just a, whether a news organization, what their definition of dead is, right? W- Wikipedia was cute. They just put her her death as August 2022. Uh-huh. They, didn't put it, they couldn't put a date on it. But what it shows, actually, this is good news. I'm sorry, Alan. This this actually speaks to the credibility of news organizations, that they care so much about getting it right that they would even hold off on letting somebody be declared dead if they don't meet that definition of mm. dead. You know. And then, of course, you, you there are assumptions on the part of the people who are writing these obits that people have any idea what the hell they're talking about. So, for example... I didn't know who Anne Heck was. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so condescending again. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, it's okay. Um, <laughs> you should see the smirk on Judy's face. <laughs> what can you do? Uh, so this is the Media Project from Northeast Public Radio. That's Alan Shartok, Rosemary Mayer, Judy Patrick. It's Patrick. the media's fault that you don't know who this prominent actress and lifestyle you know, rebel was. Well, it's their fault because they didn't explain it well to me. You know, she never appeared on Gunsmoke. Yeah. That's the problem. <laughs> you people just make fun of one of the most important uh, theatrical sorry, offerings yeah. that we've ever had in this country. No, it's you we're making fun of, not Gunsmoke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. We, we still cherish James Arness. Absolutely. But one of the reasons why there isn't, just to go back to the obits, one more thing. It's just because there are so few journalists nowadays. You know, staffs have been shortened, have been curtailed, so that if you did assign a reporter to write an obit, you're taking that person off a potentially big story. There's so much that doesn't get covered nowadays. You know, this is part of the the difficulty uh, that is going on in local news the connections that people make with their local news organizations are important. And faith in the news, uh, a Knight Foundation survey said that local outlets are more trusted than national organizations by a wide margin, 45 to 31 percent. So that's because people know when they pick up their local newspaper, listen to their local radio station, watch their local TV station, that those people are 
in their community. They're a part of what's going on in their town. If you don't have that kind of coverage, if you're an obituary center for the Gannett newspapers with 200 newspapers around the country, however many they have these days, uh, you're not connected to Poughkeepsie or Binghamton or wherever these, these papers are. So that's a, that's a great loss. But the faith in local news is disappearing anyway because there, one of the other reasons is there are these fake news sites that purport to be news sites. Uh, there's an interesting piece in the Washington Post written by a, a guy who is uh, in Alabama who says that he coined the phrase pink slime journalism. He, he claims this, that it's uh, along the lines of, uh, you remember the coverage of pink slime? By, it was at ABC News that covered the, the meatpacking plant. And that that kind of journalism is now being practiced by these fake news sites that purport to be local that are in fact nothing more than outlets for politicians, right? What can you do? I mean, you, it, people can't tell the difference, right? So I went to the website to sign, and they have—they're all websites. They're not printed products. Twenty-four news sites in New York State. One of them, the um, the one that supposedly covers the uh, Capitol, still thinks that Governor Cuomo is governor. Oh my! The late, most recent story was in 2020 of October. The other thing that they just channel a lot of um, news releases from politicians, from uh, public agencies uh, with no regard to editing. The other thing I noticed that they were focusing on was this, you know, whether or not uh, people were promoting critical race theory. And they oh, were calling boy. out they were calling out people who had signed a, this pledge to continue to teach critical race theory locale by locale. And it seemed like they were, this was a formulaic story that we were just generating to populate these websites. It's uh, it's not news. It's, uh, it's uh, a political agenda. If there, it, and, and these sites have been important in uh, tramping down the supposed, supposed and I think fake threat of critical race theory. So, it, and, and they have names that sound like they're newspapers exactly. or media sites, and it, it's just a ruse. Yeah, the company that, that you're referring to is called Metric Media, right? Exactly. They have these dozens of sites, and it's it's uh, algorithmically generated. It's not even actually there. Some of the stuff is actually written, but some of it is is this sort of tell-all from inside Metric Media tells us. Some of this is uh, when there does have to be writing, they're taking news stories from real papers, they're being rewritten at a sweatshop in the Philippines. Somebody here in the United States generates a make-believe byline that sounds like an American to go on top of this uh, story written in the Philippines. And then it uh, it gets elevated. Stories are elevated based upon what kind of, whether the content matches the algorithm they want it to be, like anti-critical race theory, and whether the traffic generates it. Uh, so that's why he calls it uh, pink slime news outlets. It's just so interesting. Uh, I mean, the idea that... So many things have been exported or imported into the United States, and now we're talking about, um, you know, the, the, the journalism and the press um, being imported or exported. Interesting point, I, Rex. I, I, I think Gannett actually started this years ago when they uh, got rid of uh, local content providers. We called them journalists or reporters then, but <laughs> they got rid of the local people and just would write the same story for across their entire chain. That's really sort of the same thing. And Sinclair Broadcasting, it isn't just in print, Sinclair Broadcasting, we have a local mm. outlet in Albany, also puts out one, for example, editorial, usually pro-Trump, and that everybody reads it word by word. That that's it. Yeah. 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 I thought I'd name it. It's this is all it's all part of the same trend and you're right. Regular people the sort who 
don't know where that is. <laughs> um, don't pay attention. They don't realize this. I think it's you know the same as uh, they have the low regard for all journalism, and they just accept this. But there doesn't seem to be an alternative for this. It doesn't uh, easily uh, lend itself to press criticism. Nobody's paying attention. <laughs> it's true. It's, yeah. I mean, they're free to do whatever they want, and it's very difficult for anybody to point it out because once you point it out, you're actually giving them more exposure than they deserve. I'd be interested to know how much traffic they actually get. It doesn't seem like it's a very worthwhile site, but maybe they're getting traction on individual stories. It does seem to me that one of the solutions might be, at least if there were some action on the antitrust exemption to allow journalism organizations to negotiate with the major social media sites like Facebook to get payments for those people, those sites like Facebook taking that journalism. That would provide some revenue to these companies so that they could potentially compete against this pink slime journalism. Well, now, Rex, you've been suggesting this for <coughs> years and years, you know, on this show. Uh, I just wondered, is there any progress in your mind that people are getting what, what they deserve? Um, this notion of giving a temporary exemption to the antitrust laws to journalism organizations does have some supporters in, in the Congress, notably Senator Amy Klobuchar, whose father, by the way, was a noted uh, newspaper columnist in the Twin Cities. So yes, to the extent that she might be able to generate support for this, there are hearings now scheduled on it. There are topics. This is a topic of conversation in Washington, not a hot topic. It certainly is not going to happen if uh, Republicans seize control of the House because the, this pink slime journalism actually benefits the right-wing politicians uh, because that is where this stuff originates. So, uh, the, I don't know, the answer to your question is probably no. Nothing is likely to happen, is it? The other thing, of course, would be if we had some, you know, federal financial support along the lines of uh, what WAMC gets uh, that would go to other uh, Folks, if you, didn't, if you didn't hear it, there was a shot. <laughs> <laughs> we actually have regressed in this matter. Facebook, who had been giving some money to news providers, has pulled back and decided now they can spend their money better in a different way than supporting... A local news outlets and have less news coverage on yeah, Facebook. They don't, they don't. People don't read news anymore. We don't need it. And it's right. really for, depressing all the, all along. Any way you look at it. And just for the sake of the record, uh, the money that public radio gets is mostly from its listeners, and they get some, not not a small amount, from the federal government. Mm-hmm. Right. The Corporation of Public Broadcasting, right, provides yes. some. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, and Facebook has given some money to local news, but it's it's pittance it's, compared to what money they earn. They are definitely downplaying news in their news, news feed, but I understand that Facebook drives some traffic to a local news website. But in terms of getting money from them, I think the winners in, in that battle are going to be places like the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, which... By the way, they employ more people than all the other local news organizations in the country combined. I mean, the power focus of journalism seems to be switching or swinging to these major companies. And they do a nice enough job, but they are not local. That's really true. And even, well, even in the past week, there have been more newsroom layoffs announced by Gannett, the largest newspaper chain, 250 papers or so around the country. Papers, we say. 
they are local websites with who also put out newspapers, uh, but they are also still laying off journalists uh, 20 years after they started laying off journalists. And this is why there are no local obituaries. Yeah, no local obituaries, yeah, right. And why even uh, we used to have as one of our uh, regular uh, players in this room, uh, in this studio, uh, Stu Shinsky, the wonderful editor of the Poughkeepsie Journal. Uh, there has been no editor in Poughkeepsie for years now. So that's that's. And what do they do with this no editor? How do they? You still have the Poughkeepsie Journal, obviously. What what happens? It's a shell of its former self. There's some local news coverage. They have some reporters who uh, go out and do stories, and that stuff is then edited in uh, White Plains at the uh, newsroom that uh, that is maintained. That is a sort of central newsroom for those Gannett papers. Same thing is true in Binghamton, you know. That basically where was the, a fine newspaper, the Binghamton Press and Sun Bulletin, largely that's controlled out of Rochester, where the Democrat and Chronicle exists. Mm. So uh, same thing happens there before for the Gannett Papers in Ithaca and Corning and so on. And we really need to emphasize the importance of the editor-reporter relationship because reporters really do desire uh, to talk to their editors. They get important feedback. They get important guidance. I've never known a reporter who didn't want to have a long conversation about with an editor about their story. And the fact that there are fewer and fewer editors, well, well, yeah, they have well, a long conversation. I'm rolling my eyes. Well, they yeah. have a long conversation. But uh, you think of reporters as independent people, but they do want uh, a sounding board. Oh, no, editors. the worst words in my life or where the editor at his door saying, can we chat? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> but they're um, often they're promoting their stories. They want good play for their stories. They want to make sure nothing gets cut from their stories. And they don't want to get fired. And, well, and that's so usually they think if they, if they got a good relationship with somebody like you or Rex or Rosemary that, you know, they're in like Flynn. Actually, the, in the the Watergate movie, All the President's Men, mm-hmm. uh, there is a, we hope, accurate scene where Jason Robards, uh, as Ben Bradley, the editor of the Washington Post, says, you haven't got it. You haven't got it. You know, sends the reporters back to do more. you got to finish the reporting or else he's not going to publish it. And that's that actually happens. You need a, an editor sometimes to buck you up, to tell you, you know, have you tried this? Have you tried this? As a young reporter, I found that invaluable. Now, there are... You know, as Rosemary was saying, uh, <laughs> there are times when you really would rather that editor just get out of your way. Um, I had an editor once who gave me this, ended up drawing on a piece of paper as he was describing for me how he wanted me to organize the story. And I walked out of his office with this piece of paper in my hand, a little sketch of a farmer sitting on a tractor. And I'm thinking, what the hell is this? <laughs> but that was his way of guiding me into how to write the story. So you, you do get some bad help editors. Too. Yeah. But <laughs> but, w- but with fewer and fewer of them and they're harder to reach if they're in a distant office. I think reporters sometimes don't have any guidance at all and they're out there on their own and then when the copy finally gets filed and there's a big hole in it and it can't run, that's a problem. Uh these are tough times. But sometimes it is the editor who helps the strengthen the backbone of the reporter. Like what if you're the young reporter who's going to cover this uh, event that we were reading about uh, where Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida was uh, showing up to do a rally for J.D. Vance, who's the Republican mm-hmm. candidate for the U.S. Senate in Ohio. So here comes this potential 2024 this presidential amazing. candidate. Here's this hot national candidate, J.D. Vance, trying to get elected to the Senate in Ohio. And the organizers of the event announced that journalists, as a condition of getting a press pass to cover the event, have to only shoot parts of the event 
in parts of the venue. It bars them from recording speakers who don't want to be recorded and says that that? the organizers can look at your video if you're shooting it to see whether you're allowed to use it. I would not call an editor. I would would have lied, signed it, gone in, and then hightailed it out there with my my film untouched and, and written about it in the story. However, that's a really serious story for the implications of that. If he gets away with it, if DeSantis gets away, sorry, Vance gets away with this. Well, they're both a part of they're it. They're both right. part of mm-hmm. it. I don't know. If either of them get away with it, then you, you, you'll see all politicians do this. And it should be challenged in court. But then I, I hesitate to say that because it could end up as a first amendment case in a Supreme Court that has a supermajority that does not like the press right now. So that mm-hmm. I think that's a really ominous um, sort of uh, bulletin. Does not like the press being shorthand for does not respect the First Amendment guarantee of, uh, ac- uh, of well pre- press access. Yeah, there you well go. <laughs> you know, yes. this may be different because it's a political issue, but I mean, there are many times when uh, a newspaper or any media company will cover an event and agree to stipulations. We will only photograph the first act at, at the Saratoga Performing Arts Center. Uh-huh. If it's a private event, oh, we can cover this, but we cannot cover that. I mean, that those are not political events, and so and that's not a public event by any means, but there's a well-known thing that we do is we do abide by some restrictions when we cover events. I mean, some of them are reasonable, and you would you would expect to cover them. Like the uh, organizers of this political event Rex is talking about tried to justify it by saying they had underage attendees. I mean, journalists don't want to write about uh, teenagers doing bad things or good things, even for that matter. Um, and so that's reasonable, and you would agree with it. But looking over your takes to see Agreed. what you have, Agreed. crazy. And their other defense is that, well, we didn't mean this for the real media. The New York Times, the Washington Post can't come in. It's for people, po- it's for pink slime journalists. They can't come in. And I think that's really bogus, and I don't think the Post went along with it. You can't say we're okay and everybody else is on their own. you got to stand together on that. Yeah, that's This a is a First thing. Amendment case. It really is. Absolutely. I, I do think, though, that, that your response is right. You you go ahead and do whatever you I'd need to do as a reporter. whatever they had to let me in there. Yeah. And then I'd get out. I'd make sure they didn't look at anything. And I would write this all up. I'd get yeah. comments later, like, why are you doing this? What what kinds of things would you pull my, my tape for or my, or my uh, film? <laughs> Now then, you might be barred from future events. You know, you might be the reporter. That's okay. We'll send somebody else. Newspapers have more than one reporter. But this is what this is what the Trump campaign. This is actually following what the 2016 Trump campaign was doing to reporters. They were routinely barring reporters from key news organizations if they if Trump didn't like what they had reported in the previous story. I mean, our our biggest weapon used to be okay, fine, but we're not going to cover you when you do want to use us. And now they don't care if we don't. They have their own way to talk to the people directly. In fact, they prefer that. Yes, this whole idea of going to some place and getting press credentials. Maybe you just go. Um, mm. I remember covering um, uh, some festival, and they said, "Oh no, you've got to get press credentials," and then you walk around with a big sign on your around right. your neck, that, you know, and so nobody's <laughs> going to do anything interesting in front of you. Perhaps the apogee of this was when Rudy Giuliani was the mayor of New York, uh, and he was very much trying to restrict the press, uh, and so there would be a crime scene, and the journalists would be penned up a, like a block away from the crime scene, whereas everybody else was walking down the street, and the journalists were standing there in this literally penned in by the New York Don't you put pigs in pens? Well, I suppose they would say that, yes, as opposed to you could be on Rudy Giuliani's side if you like, by the way. You know, Alan, that's just fine. Not me. <laughs> but um, but that is, and, and the media 
reacted to that, actually took City Hall to court. Uh, the New York Daily News uh, at that time uh, was the major player in the court action and uh, won and got injunctions against the city of New York uh, and Mayor Giuliani. Um, and of course, uh, we we know what has happened to him and how he has uh, fared. Mm, respect has changed over the years. But part of this is because, as, as you were saying, there is not so much that can be done because people can go around us. They can ignore us. They can social media has its own avenues into people's um, cell phones, into their uh, laptops and everything. And and we don't know what kind of real constraints there may be by social media in this campaign upcoming, this presidential race that's ahead. There was a lot of criticism of the way Facebook and Twitter and so on uh, did their work in the last campaign. We don't really know if there's going to be any change in any effort to assure that what is published is actually accurate on those sites, is actually true, or whether the fake stuff can get through once again, as it has in the past. So Again, what social media was doing was fairly lame the last time. They kept on telling me to register to vote. They kept on telling me where my election site was, and they were doing nothing with all the bad misinformation that uh, kept on being circulated. They can't do much if my friend posts a silly meme with bad info. I know that they have the technology to do it. They just need to work a lot harder and, and tell us what they're doing. Well, TikTok says that it's working with some fact-checking organizations like PolitiFact, uh, which was uh, created by uh, Pointer Institute in Florida, um, and uh, Lead Stories. I can't remember who does that. They're going to try to debunk misinformation when it appears on their sites and take it down. But we don't really know if that's going to be successful. We don't know how uh, how powerful that's going to be. Um, Meta, which is Facebook, uh, says it's going to reduce how often it uses labels uh, directing people toward reliable information. It's going to have fewer labels aiming people toward reliable information, they're saying. So that doesn't sound like that's progress. That sounds like that's uh, backsliding. So, Rex, when did this program become an hour long? (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like we're out of time. We hate to do this, folks. Thanks for joining us. Alan Chartok, Rosemary Armeo, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith. With uh, gratitude to our, our producer this week, Elizabeth Hill, and to our patient engineer, Rob Chacon. Thank you. Join us again next week on The Media Project. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising. Get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs>